Red Cloaks Radio is a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio. Really excited today. We've got back an exciting guest. Today, our co-hosts are... Hi, I'm Laura. I'm with the Red Cloaks as well. I'm Karen with the Red Cloaks. And today we get to see again, Senator Brendan Crichton. Hello. Nice to see you again. Great to see you too. And and thank you for all you do and for the opportunities to chat here today. We're so thrilled to be welcoming back Senator Brendan Crichton, who represents the third Essex of Massachusetts. We had a wonderful conversation with him earlier and we had so many questions. He opened up a whole world of opportunities and advocacy. We couldn't stop talking. So we're welcoming you back. Remind us of what the the towns are. Yep, absolutely. So I represent the communities of Lynn, Linfield, Marblehead, Nahant, Saugus and Swampscott. Awesome. Last time you were here, we, we opened up some really nice things about themes that take place across the state. And I know in passing the Roe Act, it mattered just as much to me that you were in support as my own senator, because without having enough senators, nothing moves forward. Something that I have to say is newer for me is this two-year legislative cycle. So when you were here last time, we talked about a couple current pending matters, and some of them are returning because they haven't made it through. I I wondered if you could just start by talking us through what's it like on your end having a two-year cycle? I'm coming into my 16th year working at the State House, so my life kind of is in two-year cycles since that time. And this year is a bit of an adjustment just with the pandemic. Our last session ended, you know, in the wee hours, uh, the first week of January, and, you know, we finished our session, voted on some major bills, and then a few hours later, we're sworn into the next session. Um, so some of those bills, you know, that we get across the finish line, most we don't, you know, you have 6,000 bills that are filed every year, you know, this year, this session, you know, we are going to still be facing this pandemic while there's light at the end of the tunnel. We're you know, not out of the tunnel yet. And um, everything's kind of changed a bit. So even just us meeting together for public hearings, which we, we spoke a little bit about last time, you know, when you, you're a grassroots organization, you want to mobilize, you want to show up with Know, hundreds of supporters and testify there and to show your numbers but you know we're doing everything through you know zoom or teams and remotely right now which makes it difficult um but um you know we have to adapt uh, to these changing times and hopefully we can be together in person soon but two years you know when you start out you like you think you have all the time in the world but it's the clock is always ticking in um for some of these priorities like the healthy youth act you know, we really want to get a public hearing, you know, quickly, uh, and then, you know, get these bills to the floor. And then two, one other piece too, the biggest part of our, our two-year session every year, the two budgets that we'll take up, which take up a lot of, um, you know, energy and time and bandwidth. Um, and that will be coming up, you know, it's just around the corner. It's always interesting. I'll say that. Well, that it helps. And I know also for people to understand, there's just hundreds of legislative bills floating around. So it's, there's a lot to review. And then things get divided up into these committees. What is it like for you when something you really care about maybe doesn't end up in a committee that you're part of? You know, it's, it's, it happens more often than not, just, you know, you're, you're on a handful of committees, um, you know, in the Senate, you know, we, we're all, you know, chairs of committees as well. So you have that workload, you know, last session as the housing chair dealing with you know, the eviction and foreclosure uh, moratorium along with, you know, tenant protections and, and keeping people safely in their homes certainly took up, you know, a lot of our focus, which may take a focus off of some of the other, you know, bills that we care about. So it is kind of a, a balancing act, your role 
on the committee and making sure that you know you're moving bills along and you know acting in the most responsible way on that particular subject matter and then also trying to get your priorities moving uh forward but you know having done it for a while now i think you know you know and staff really uh you know, it's not just us as you know, the elected, our staff are crucial. And I say that as a former staffer for 10 years, so I have a fun place in my heart uh, for the work that they do. Um, they really prepare us well, you know, even on an issue like, you know, Roe last session, um, we spoke about this, so I don't want to be too repetitive, but to get a major bill like that in a limited time period, uh, you know, as a priority during COVID, um, you know, it's a, a true testament to the system working and to uh, great leaders like Harley Chandler and, and the Senate president, uh, you know, making it a priority. So we can get big things done here in Massachusetts. Yeah, that was impressive for us. I want to jokingly say that on the activist organizer side, it feels like the two-year cycle is designed to really wear us down, and make us give up. And then yeah. when you extended last July, of course, we wanted to have another opportunity to, but it was also like really yeah. okay all right we're you know when it really matters you keep going yeah but. it was a long long year and um you know i mentioned uh, the senate president and senator chandler but uh the grassroots activism um was obviously a, a major catalyst in all of this so thank you to you and all of uh, the organizations that you partnered with some of the things that you talked about in the last conversation that we had started up some questions in my head but that also does too in that like what do you see as useful for grassroots organizations like us to bubble up and start to do now i think contacting you know legislative allies but also folks you need to you know persuade on like just because we're not in the state house doesn't mean we're not being you know responsive um you know certainly when a constituent emails obviously that's kind of the biggest it raises the attention of any legislator. Right now, we're utilizing this time to blast emails and, and phone calls to a certain extent to contact those folks. If by chance we continue to be remote through the summer, I mean, I hope in the fall we can safely come back in a hybrid model um, where people could testify, you know, through a Zoom at a hearing, but also folks could come. Either way, I think utilizing the hearing and using that as a a rallying point is still important, even with kind of this new model that we have in place for hearings. That's kind of like, I mean, I was thinking things in terms of elections, like E-days, like the day you circle on the count, you work towards that. I would use that as the first day that you're working towards to building that momentum. And then, you know, getting that out of committee uh, obviously is a, a difficult thing when you the committees have hundreds of bills before them to try to get that one move quickly. But I mean, I think what you did, what you did worked, right? So. I, <laughs> You know, I, I, I shouldn't be answering this question <laughs> for you. I think uh, you were successful. And I think communicating with legislators does matter, even though sometimes it may seem as if it doesn't at the time. We made a number of trips to the uh, State House uh, in, in uh, BC COVID. And along with trying not to burst out laughing as people were staring at us and tittering and pointing, uh, we, we were thrilled to visit um, legislators in their office offices. We were thrilled that they were thrilled that, uh, that they sat down with us and talked, that, they, that their staff welcomed us. Um, and one even gave us candy and water 
and so, <laughs> so it's a thrill for us too. It re it really is. So um, not just you expect to see us running through the halls as soon as possible. Yeah, wait. I you know I have very fond memories uh, throughout my time in the building. I miss it very much. Um, my wife uh, still works in the building. We met when she was well. We both met uh, in the Senate. Um, so spent a lot of time up there, and it's it's strange not uh, being back right now. I really miss it. And, um, you know, it's a people's building. So it's fun to have, you know, you could bump into random constituents that are up there or people, you know, from back home there to advocate for a bill. The advocacy still is there now. Um, I can't wait for it to be back in person. As an educator, I've worked in um, Somerville High School, Everett, Cambridge. So um, very close to Lynn and mm -hmm. um, had lots of um, colleagues that worked in the Lynn schools. And, and, and I would go into a school where I was not allowed to answer certain questions. <laughs> and so it, it just makes me think about the fact that these, that kids in school, that teens of all ages have these questions, they're out there. And yet educators like me, because we don't have a mandate yet, aren't allowed to answer these questions and give the, 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 the right information, the accurate information out there. So, so kids are still not getting what they need. And yet, so uh, when I started in Somerville, it was like the, the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. And there were 60 pregnancies, 6D, 6-0 in the high school at that mm -hmm. time. And, and, and so I just, I wonder like, okay, so is anybody looking at like, there has to be the, the, decline of pregnancies based on the, the education that's out there. And like you said in the last conversation that we had, you know, just making sure the, the misinformation out there gets fixed. And, and where do people like you start with that? <laughs> I think the, the work that's been put into this bill for years um, has laid solid groundwork uh, to move it forward. And I'm hopeful it passes, but I don't understand why this is a subject matter that we're not teaching when it's obviously a part, you know, the stats show such a, I mean, it's a big part of uh, young adults' uh, lives and it could create a framework and a foundation for them to build, you know, healthy relationships. Like we said earlier, it empowers them to make the right decision for them and their body. It, it does seem like we're, you know, stuck in another century really, or another time where, you know, we're starting to progress in so many ways as a society, yet even in Massachusetts, we don't have this standard in place. The, the results um, and the statistics are there. And, you know, the public health community is certainly rallied around this. Obviously, grassroots organizations like your own parents, students. I think we have the facts on our side on this one, but we still need to crack away at some of those fears that we've talked about a lot. I know you mentioned that um, you, you, we were trying to, you know, sort of talk through some of the, the um, barriers, you know, where are those barriers? Who are the people that are afraid of, especially the, the Healthy Youth Act? And I, I wondered whether you found that it was, it's definitely not ed educators, I know that, but, but it, do you find that it's parents that are really afraid? Or like with the Roe Act, we found that it was mostly older white legislators older white male legislators yeah. sorry <laughs> thankfully I, I i hope i'm not considered in the older category just yet so i can exclude myself on it but um not enough white hair 
Yeah, well, essentially <laughs> the lighting's just right here. Um, but everyone's district is so different, right? So like, it's easy for me to sit here and say, be a champion for these progressive issues and kind of throw caution to the wind in terms of you know what my you know constituents. I mean, it wasn't without pain. Don't get me wrong. Like, I mean, I, I was raised Catholic. Uh, my son's in a Catholic school right now um, in kindergarten, and you know there are many people here, many of my supporters that are no longer my supporters, and it is what it is. And I imagine in many districts across the state that maybe lean um, more conservative, you know that pain was felt even greater. It's not that folks that are opposed to this or hesitant are necessarily um, you know coming from a bad place. People, some legislators or elected officials just in general, they treat the voice of their constituents in such a way that, um, you know, to contradict what they're hearing and who they're hearing from would be to, to not be doing their job, not be, you know, upholding what they uh, believe their duty is as an elected. So I, I think it's raising the voices that may not be speaking loudly on this to counteract that, uh, you know, a lot of the fear mongering and a lot of the constituents to reach out. And then there are, you know, there are some folks that, you know, you're never going to move on this, but I, I do think that we care about issues our constituents care about. And even if we're not going to get to the, their viewpoint, like we want to have those conversations and we want to, you know, legislators can be, be moved um, depending on how their constituency is voicing their concerns. So um, I just keep, keep at it, keep doing the work and, I do think that we're moving in that right direction or left direction, but we're moving there, but, um, you know, change is hard. So it's, it's a really good segue. I want to ask you about that overall progressive arc and where we are at the national level. Really curious to, to see how you feel things are sitting in Massachusetts. We're so blue, you know, on the map. And yet when we went through the, the Roe Act and we look at things like healthy youth, well, it feels like a progressive state would have passed the Healthy Youth Act years ago. So we bump into this interesting distribution across the state where there's conservative people kind of everywhere. The Catholic influence, also part of my family life is, you know, across the state. Um, interested in knowing, do you feel like we'll be bluer this legislative session? Do you feel like some of the, um, you know, tipping points have maybe been reached on different issues like housing, uh, certainly looking at racism in the state and trying to dismantle white supremacy nationally and you know what we can do at the state level. How does it feel to you? I mean, I feel like the momentum's heading uh, in, in the right direction, certainly. And, um, you know, we always want to do more, but if you just look at the, the last session, whether it's, you know, with police reform, our climate bill, some of the healthcare bills that were, you know, compiled in that uh, larger piece, you know, transportation, uh, you know, you know, there were issues there, obviously, with, um, you know, the governor at some points and some of the more progressive things we were pursuing there, uh, and, any disagreements between the House and the Senate and the pandemic, they kind of threw that off a little bit. But we're starting to have these conversations and they're not, you know, brand new or radical ideas. They're, they're policies that even our Republican governor, you know, would vote on. I mean, not in the case of, or not vote on, he would, you know, sign and be supportive of. I mean, on the housing end, and again, we didn't get everything we wanted, but for, you know, we have some of the highest costs of home ownership and rent in the country. And I believe a lot of it's because of snob zoning laws that don't allow for, you know, building uh, really multifamilies and communities that are trying to keep people out. Um, and again, we talked a bit before about housing segregation. I won't dive into that, but our bill took 
the governor has been pushing for for housing shortage to allow for communities, to make it easier for communities to vote with a simple majority for development projects. But we went a step further, and people said it was pie in the sky when I started as housing chair, and they said, you know, we applaud you for your, you know, desire to get this done, but it's never going to happen. And that was it was a mandate to force communities that have public transportation, MBTA communities, to build multifamilies. And any mandate is seen as a state, you know, overstepping and, you know, punishing cities and towns by making them make these decisions. But the reception has been, you know, phenomenal. And the governor signed it. I mean, I couldn't, not that I couldn't believe it, but this policy that was considered radical two years ago now is, you know, largely being celebrated. I'm sure there are folks in communities that are frustrated that they need to do this, but uh, it's the right thing to do if we want to bring down costs and we also want to, you know, increase access for, for trans public transportation too. So, so yeah, long answer again for an easy question, but I, I think we're moving there, but you can't take your foot off the gas pedal on any of this stuff. Um, you know, and they're going to be obviously bumps in the road and certainly, you know, the one, the, the stimulus package is phenomenal and a lifeline for our cities and towns and for our state, but there are going to be fiscal challenges moving forward too in the upcoming you know, fiscal years that, you know, we're going to require tough decisions. And I don't think we, you know, can stop pushing for a better revenue policy and more revenue for transportation and education in particular. So yeah, we got to just keep fighting. Well, we would like to be able to help our listeners find you so that they can continue to fight with you. Would you leave us with your contact information for them? I, I would love to hear from them. So our office number is 617-722-1350. And you know, while we're not in the state house, uh, you know, we we get emails for any voicemails that are left there, and we, and we do have you know staff in there from time to time uh, as well. And then um, you know, our email is probably the the best way. It's Brendan B R E N D an dot Crichton, C-R-I-G-H-T-O-N at N-A-Senate.gov. The easiest access to that is probably on, on the state's website. I uh, would love to hear from you, whether it be, you know, suggestions, uh, I, you know, ideas about policy, but also criticisms too. I mean, we, we, we always want to be improving and we want to be able to, you know, look at ourselves and our, the work we're putting in and make sure that we're staying on the right track and, and doing everything we can. Thank you so much for coming back and chatting with us. And we will look forward to continuing the conversation during this lengthy two-year <laughs> legislative session ahead of us, where we know we're going, to see, we're going to see a lot of progress. We can feel it already. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So much, first time is always the hardest. It was <laughs> wonderful to have this conversation with you, Senator. Thank you so much for making time. And also my thanks go to uh, John bolt as well for uh, opening the door for us. Thank you both. Great. Thank you, Karen, Laura, and Jesse. And uh, I'll pass that along. Yeah, the staff's great. And uh, hopefully you can meet them in person at the State House uh, one day soon. Yay! Yay. <laughs> You've been listening to Red Cloaks Radio, a production of the Boston Red Cloaks. Find us at bostonredcloaks.com and have a great day.